the reason I think that's important in this in the case that we're talking about in thinking about climate change is because it says stop trying to take control acknowledge that you have to surrender some control to make this thing work you cannot steer this process entirely And welcome to the seventh episode of What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister for Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. So far on this podcast, I've spoken to some of the world's most influential campaigners, economists and business people about how we can tackle the climate crisis and renew our economics in a post-pandemic world. My guests have included people like Naomi Klein, Mark Carney, Joseph Stiglitz, and Christiana Figueres. This week, we have something a little bit different, a conversation with the legendary music producer, Brian Eno. Brian is probably best known to you as one of the people behind some of the most influential music of all time. But what you may not know is that he is also an active climate campaigner. As you'll hear, he thinks a lot about what different models and structures for making music can teach us about how to organise society and our politics. This was a fascinating conversation that looks at climate change from a completely different perspective from those of my previous guests. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and your feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Please also tell a friend about the show or give us a rating or a review as it'll help others to discover the podcast. Now, here's my conversation with Brian Eno. Brian, I've had uh, economists and um, activists and climate scientists uh, and others on this podcast talking about how to get from where we are today to where we need to be in the future. And I haven't had an artist or anyone from the arts and culture sector. I'm wondering, what do you see as the intersection between the arts in general and this movement about how we shift and transform? Well, I think it depends on how you think people's minds are changed. What makes people have different thoughts about where they are and where they ought to be? And, of course, because we come from sort of intellectual academic cultures, most of us, we think that it's reasoned argument and it's evidence and it's rationality and logic and so on. Or, on the other hand, we think it's something completely devious like propaganda or brainwashing or something like that. So, but we don't allow for the fact that most of us make decisions in, in much more complex ways than either of those. Most of us dealing with um, complicated questions about how you live your life and what sort of life is worth living and so on. We don't approach that very scientifically because there isn't much science about it. It isn't something that science talks about well. So what we tend to do is we form impressions and feelings about what would be good to do, what's the right thing to do at the moment, what other people are doing. And 
one of the ways we pick up those feelings, I think, is through the arts. In fact, I think that's the primary way that we do that. We get an impression of what the culture is like at the moment, what people are doing, what it feels like. And art is one of the ways we find out what things feel like. You know, it's very obvious if you think of it in terms of literature or films where we watch fictions, we watch inventions of lives and worlds, and we imagine what it would be like to be in those lives and worlds. Um, and it's something that we can do in with fiction in a way that we can't do with real life because you don't have an investment in fiction. This this became very clear to me once when I was I was on a bus on the Kilburn High Road there were two ladies sitting behind me um, who'd been watching um, one of our soap operas the night before called EastEnders. It's, it's a long-running soap opera about working-class people in the East End, and these two ladies were working-class, probably East Ender people, and they were having quite an animated discussion about one of the characters who had just declared herself to be a lesbian and whether that that was acceptable and whether she should have told her boyfriend before she told her parents, all sorts of quite complicated moral questions that they were talking about. And I thought they would not have been talking about these had they not had this piece of art, this soap opera, to first of all give them the subject matter to talk about, but also to do it in such a way that they could talk dispassionately it wasn't their sister or their auntie. It wasn't somebody they had an investment in. It was just a character in, in a play. Um, and I think that the fact of this thing that art does all the time, which is it creates new worlds. It says, what do you think about this world? What would this be like? How would you feel about this? I think that's the way we do a lot of our thinking about these big decisions. And in, in fact, in, this, in case of this particular issue, climate change, um, even though there's been a lot of science about this, most people aren't that familiar with it. Um, in fact, you know, most people don't really know much about the science of these things at all. They just have a sense that something is going wrong. And you have to say, well, where does that sense come from? And it comes in large part from our experience of art, of television programs, of films, of literature, and so on. So, so I think artists, you know, since artists are world builders in a way, imaginary world builders, um, th this is one of the things we are now building worlds about. It's the, it's the biggest concern that most of us have. So that starts to infect how we do our work. When it comes to climate change, there have been one or two horrendously bad movies. Um, there's been quite a lot of uh, good um, science fiction or cli-fi, as people call it. Call it. Um, I'm not aware that there's been a huge amount in the in in the music domain. Um, what what have you seen? Because I, I know that you're very involved in the climate movement, both in the UK and around the world. Well, I think. When you move away from the, let's say, the literal arts, the arts where there's clearly a narrative and there's a story and arguments and words, basically, when you move away from words, you have to think about art slightly differently. Now, I think it still does the same thing, but it does it in a more abstract way. 
So, for instance, think of um, think of the Bauhaus, for example. Bauhaus in the 1920s and 30s and so on presented an image of a new world, and it did it mostly without language. Um, you don't remember Bauhaus literature very well. You don't remember Bauhaus films. In fact, I don't know that there were any. Um, what you remember is is an approach to how one should live one's life. And that approach in that case was sort of rationalistic, um, deliberately simplified, leave out all the ornament. Um, it was, it's an approach to living. It's, it's sort of a, a kind of technological spiritualism, if you like, to say, I'm going to live an ascetic life, A-S-C-E-T-I-C. <laughs> um, I'm going to live a life where I deliberately restrict my choices, where I don't put in everything that I can find, where I leave things out. Um, so this is, this is the kind of thing I think you're going to see more of in, in the arts of people. In fact, you see a lot of it already, of people saying, no, I'm not just going to follow the technological imperative and do the most technically complicated thing. I'm going to do something with my own hands. And in fact, I'm going to use a crappy old guitar that I found in a secondhand shop. And I'm going to make something out of that recycled instrument. So those kinds of things become the kinds of things that artists do, I think. Um, you know, a, another, an opposite approach to that would be to say, I'm going to use the most sophisticated computer equipment and it's all going to be really high tech and I'm going to be wired up on Facebook. So I've got inputs all the time into what I'm doing. Um, so this would be another approach. And every approach that an artist uses is a sort of statement of position as well. Um, in fact, when you listen to something, you don't only listen to sounds, you listen to the way it came into existence as well. That's one of the things you hear. This is why people get so excited about jazz, because it comes into existence in a very unusual way. People make it up. Um, you know, this is, this is kind of unfamiliar for most, for, for a lot of music anyway. And when you listen to uh, bedroom pop music, that's also interesting because it's somebody on their own working in a way that is not familiar still to most people. You know, most people imagine, still imagine music being performed by a group of people standing in front of a microphone and singing. That is not actually what happens mostly now. Mostly it's people sitting in bedrooms or glorified bedrooms called recording studios. Um, so, so I think you have to look beyond the kind of literal content of music to find its messages. The literal content has some meaning, but it's, I've always found the words of pop songs to be completely dispensable in nearly all cases and of no interest whatsoever, other than they give you something funny to sing. Um, but I am a little bit of a <laughs> outlier in that theory, I think. An unusual one, given your history. <laughs> it's been a constant source of discussion. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I would, I'd certainly give you something to argue about at the dinner table, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, can I ask you, are there any particular examples that you've seen recently in any domain, whether it's you know music or um, visual arts or so on, 
of artists who who have done a a good job of uh, um, making the environment or climate change part of their work in, in particular? Well, I think I think there are quite a few artists working now in in what I call generative art. That's that's the name I gave to this kind of art about thirty years ago now, um, and the idea of generative art is. Can I make a world that will create itself? That's to say, can I invent a set of rules and conditions and then watch something grow? Now, to do that in real life is quite difficult. Um, it involves a lot of knowledge of chemistry and genetics and so on. But it's, it is possible in art to do that. It's possible in science as well. In mathematics, there are lots of forms of generative science. Um, but I became interested in this notion of, well, I, I describe it as saying, um, instead of thinking like an architect, which is to say, I've got this vision in my mind and I'm going to make it exactly like it is in my mind, which is what people imagine artists are generally doing, externalizing a vision that already exists in their mind. Um, so I always say, instead of thinking of yourself as an architect, think of yourself as a gardener, which is to say you start with a set of conditions and uh, you add something to those conditions. You watch what happens. You change the rules a little bit. Um, in gardening terms, it would be put the things in different sites, change the constituents of the soil and the compost and the watering and so on. Um, but in fact, what you're doing is a cooperation with nature. You're not completely imposing something on nature. You're cooperating with nature. And I, th I think of generative art as um, a way of simulating and trying to understand how that approach to making things works. Now, I think this is a profoundly political thing to do because it's the difference between a kind of government that says, I know how things should be, and this is how they're going to be, and you just obey, okay, which is um, the kind of government that we have here and <laughs> that America has there as well. That, that sort of macho style of top-down government is exactly the opposite of what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm interested in a sort of a government that, that creates the conditions for growing up from the bottom, um, from the soil, as it were. So I think quite a lot of artists are working with this and have been for about 50 or 60 years now. It's, it's an idea that is becoming more and more familiar to people. Um, and the reason I think that's important in this, in the case that we're talking about, in thinking about climate change, is because it says, stop trying to take control. Acknowledge that you have to surrender some control to make this thing work. You cannot steer this process entirely. Um, we've always assumed, because we come from technical cultures, that um, control is our default position. You know, we, we'll fix it somehow. So this, this we'll fix it idea enables us to do all sorts of terrible things because we think that we'll find a technical fix. Um, 
well, it looks like we're losing out on that strategy. It's not going to work. So we have to stop doing the things we're doing and hoping that the technical fix will turn up sooner or later. And we have to start working differently with the planet. We have to start cooperating with it, essentially, rather than dominating it. And so I know this all sounds very abstract, um, but I think a lot of artists are now starting to think about making their work in that way, um, to think about it as a as um, an exercise that involves both control and surrender. I always use as my example surfing, which, by the way, I can't do, but <laughs> I always like watching other You're people doing it. <laughs> what you see with surfing is people switching between the control mode and the surrender mode. So the control mode is getting onto the wave. The surrender mode is being carried along by it. And I, I think that's a very good analogy for how we could live our lives of propelling ourselves into a situation of some kind, but then surrendering to it and being carried along with it. Um, and I, I find this is more and more the way that artists are thinking about working now. Um, it's, I mean, I can, it's difficult to give specific technical examples of it, but it's kind of what I do all the time <laughs> now. Well, I, I have heard you use that phrase before. There was an interview, uh, I think in the Guardian in about 2017, and you said generative music as a sort of model for how society and politics could work. Mm -hmm. um, and that phrase stood out to me because the idea of uh, using music as a model for politics mm -hmm. uh, isn't one that sits with my experience of politics, <laughs> shall right. we say. It's <laughs> Not only is there not a, not a lot of music in the in the domain, uh, but the the kind of moves that people make um, and the way that it works uh, doesn't really accord with how I understand music to mm -hmm. be created and to come into being. Mm -hmm. Do you know a piece by Terry Riley called In Sea? It's I do not. It's, okay, it's one of it's one of the first, in my opinion, one of the first pieces of generative music. It didn't have that name then; the name had been invented. But um, to me, it's a very interesting picture of of a kind of politics, and it's quite the piece is quite easy to explain. Um, it's only fifty two bars; they're all in four four, and they're all in the key of C. Um, and the instructions are very simple. You get a group of any group of musicians. It could be five harp players, a piccolo player, and two drummers or something like that. And they're presented with the score. They all have exactly the same score, the same 52 bars. I think it's 52 or 53 bars. And they all start on bar one. So they all start together in unison. But the rules are... Anytime you want to move on to the next bar, you can. So you keep repeating a bar until you feel like moving on to the next one. But of course, everybody moves at a different time whenever they feel like it. So quite soon, 
there are many different bars playing. In fact, eventually there are normally as many bars playing as there are musicians. So you, you get a very complex, incredibly beautiful piece out of this discoordination among the players. The fact that they're not all moving together creates the beauty of the piece. So this for me is very interesting that conventional composing would say, okay, now on bar 14, you all, on, on the 14th round of bar one, you all turn to bar two. Everything would be locked together like that. So I started to get interested after hearing in C and a few other pieces, some of Steve Reich's work, in this idea of desynchronization, in a sense, complexity arising out of discoordination, which is the opposite of what normally happens in music. And that struck me as a very interesting political idea, that instead of trying to keep everybody on the same page, you design the game so that everybody being on different pages is the result you want. Um, so in the case of that piece in C, of course, they're all playing in one key all the way through. So nothing too outrageous harmonically happens. And they're all playing to the same pulse. Um, and, well, it's a lovely piece of music. And, of course, the lovely thing about it is that every time it's performed, it sounds different because performers make different judgments and bring along different instruments and so on. So this, this sort of philosophical world that you enter into where suddenly surrender becomes as important as control, um, where discoordination becomes as important as coordination, where complexity, sort of runaway complexity, is part of the deal, where unpredictability is part of the deal, where you say, look, I don't actually know where it's going to go, but I think it will be all right because we've designed the We've designed the rules quite well, but I can't, I can't predict in detail where it's going to be at this point in the future. I just think that this will work. And it's, it's a bold type of experiment because um, you can't do things like have five-year plans, you know, the, the things that the Communist Party used to do in Soviet Russia of saying, in five years we will produce this many potatoes and that much wheat and this much steel. Well, you have to, if you're going to use this new way of working, you have to accept that you change your plans pretty often. Things drift into different directions. So this, this is all a sort of world of metaphors, really, for different ways of thinking about organization. And it's organization is the key word. You know, music is basically organization. It's the organization of sound, which is nothing very important. <laughs> but organization itself is very important. And how we think about organization, how we think about how it works is important. I was thinking as you were talking about that that, that actually sounds quite democratic. Yes. You know, a, a democracy, uh, when it functions well, uh, is one where you do have a great deal of diversity of thought and opinion. Um, and the whole thing does kind of meander along, mm -hmm. uh, muddling through um, to to arrive somewhere. <laughs> yeah. um, and, of course, by the time it arrives there, it's time to move somewhere else. But it doesn't feel as beautifully harmonic uh, as the piece that you were just describing. <laughs> um, and 
I, I wonder if there's something – well, you, you talked before about a, a certain sense of disillusion with your own government at the moment. Um, was despite the fact it is, a demo, you know, it is a democratic government, right? It's one that was elected um, uh, via whatever system the UK has. And that how do, how do you sort of bring those two notions together? Because mm-hmm. sometimes it well, means that you all, get a government that you don't particularly like the sound of. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, um, I think you have to accept with this sort of philosophical world that I'm talking about that things are going to be messy all the time. It's never going to reach the kind of nirvana, the thousand-year Reich, the great, you know, unchallengeable correct way of doing things. It just won't be like that. It's always going to be making accommodations and compromises and um, nips and tucks to sort of try to fit the ever-evolving world. And I think that's the, that's a very important thing to realize that that is how things are going to be and to accept that and to say, okay, we accept messy. Um, I don't know if you've read that book by Tim Harford. He He's an economist, writes for the Financial Times sometimes, very good writer. He wrote a book called Messy. (laughs) And it's about this idea of accepting that messiness is the sort of condition of democracy. Um, It just is untidy. Uh, You know, we just have to accept that. And sometimes for a little while, we'll bring it together and it works really well and Everyone's very happy with it. Um, And then situation changes and those rules don't quite work anymore, so we have to adapt. But I think that expectation of permanent adaptation is is important, and it's something we really have to do. And, of course, politicians traditionally don't ever offer that because it sounds unconvincing. You know, people like or they think that people like clear statements, bold programs, and, um, you know, the, the one thing that politicians really get beaten up for is changing their minds, called flip-flopping, and that's considered the worst thing you could possibly do. Um, and I think people should be congratulated for changing their minds. You should say to them, well done, you looked at the evidence and you came to a different conclusion. I wonder if the COVID-19 pandemic crisis has given politicians a bit more permission to mm-hmm. be able to change their minds because uh, from a position of being in government as we were as the pandemic really hit around the world and as it was starting to show up in New Zealand we were a little behind the rest of the world which uh, worked in our favor but yes. we had no real data. I mean, you know, there was so so little that we could say. And, uh, you know, every day we were adapting to information that had come to light in the previous 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And the, the public actually did seem to have a remarkable tolerance for, get, you know, us getting up and saying, yes, we know we said this yesterday. Today we're going to do the following. Mm-hmm. And and I, and I, perhaps that's because that's what was happening in their own lives as well at the same time. Yes. Well, in order for permission to change minds to work, you have to actually have 
some minds involved. And unfortunately, in England and America, we haven't really had many of those um, at the upper echelons of government. So we've we've been saddled with a sort of macho government that takes scientific evidence as a challenge to its manhood. Um, I mean, Trump is the best example, but Bolsonaro is, is the same and Putin is the same and Johnson is the same. They're all people who have kind of launched this persona, which doesn't fuck about and doesn't stand for any nonsense and is is a real man, you know, man up, as Bolsonaro said when he was told that 44,000 Brazilians were dead. Man up. It's just a kind of flu. And this is so idiotically macho, and it, it really shows you why this kind of govern, governance is not fit for the 21st century. We simply can't go on like that. Right now we have a big argument going on in England um, because – the EU, which we have just left, or theoretically have left, of course we haven't really yet. Um, the EU has a a program of to arrive at a vaccine of some kind, and it's an international across the whole EU program. And England has been invited to join and could join because we still are technically paid up in the EU until the end of this year. But of course. We don't want to be seen as going back to as acknowledging that the Europeans are doing something that that we need. So there's all this discussion going on about whether we're going to join in and join forces with them on developing a vaccine. This is just completely ludicrous that at this stage, when you have this crisis, which is backed up by another crisis, which is climate change, which is backed up by an even bigger one, which is biodiversity loss. You know, when there's this succession of things in the future that the only way we're going to deal with them is by radical cooperation. So we really have to get rid of these kinds of governments. You know, I mean, what we really want, we all would like Jacinda Arden at the moment as our as our goddess, actually. <laughs> Could could you um, hire her out to us for a few years? Uh, well, it, it might that might cover our foreign exchange earnings loss when when tourism took such a bath. But um, I'm afraid she's busy. <laughs> <laughs> she's such a good example of how this how this kind of thing should be approached. There's a humility about it, and uh, an eagerness to listen, to pay attention to the science. This is what the macho governments have absolutely failed to do. There's no humility. There's this sense of, hey, we're America, we, we're England, we can deal with this. What kind of a problem is this? Just a bit of RNA, you know. Um, and it's hopeless. I'm, I'm interested in it because there has been some uh, writing done about whether the governments led by women have outperformed as a set the governments led mm -hmm. by men. Um, yeah. And, I mean, you seem quite explicit about this, that there's a sort of a macho style of, of leadership that that is entirely counterproductive um, versus perhaps a more feminine style of leadership that, mm -hmm. and at least in the situation that we're in, seems to be, to be more effective. Do, do you think that there, there is an explicit link there? 
Yes, I do. I, I mean, I think it's it's like the understanding of the value of caring. So, you know, in economics, caring, because it doesn't generate any income, is not considered as a thing. It doesn't figure in economics. So since it doesn't impact on GDP at all, it's not a subject in economics. And now there are quite a few economists, mostly female, who are saying, hold on, this is a big part of how things work. This is what looks after children. This is what gets the guys to work. This is, this is part of what makes the whole ecology of human culture work. And we don't value it at all. And in the same way, we don't value the environment because, again, the environment is seen as mostly free goods that we can use and a place that we can chuck the waste results. Um, and so there's a whole set of new economists, um, Mariana Mazzucato, um, Carlotta Perez, uh, Kate Rayworth, who are all talking about bringing these other factors into the equation. Now, it's very interesting to me that it's mostly female economists doing that. And, and I think it's because they understand things in a slightly different way from men. I don't mean men aren't capable of this understanding. We clearly are. But I think it's sort of built into women much earlier that caring is part of what you do with your life. You know, if you're, if you're going to have one of those things in your tummy, a baby, you can't really avoid the subject of thinking about caring, whereas you can if you're a man, you know, because she's going to do it sort of thing. So so this sense of stewardship of saying uh, my job is to look after things, not to come out on a white horse as the person who won the election and then get bored for the next few, four years because you realize you actually have a job to do, um, which again is what it looks like with Trump and Johnson and so on. The, their big triumph was the election victory. And then there's this unfortunate um, four years of having to be a bloody prime minister or a president. <laughs> Not what they bargained for at all. Um, well, yeah. So I, I've, I'll send you something when we're finished, actually. I'll, post you a little thing I did for Woman's Hour on the radio here um, uh, last week, which was about the idea, about these ideas of macho government. You might, you could use it in this program possibly if you want to. Thank you. No, I'd, I would appreciate that because that was actually going to be my next question is, mm -hmm. do you see the same in music or in the wider arts field, that tension there between a sort of macho command and control versus a, um, a more feminine ground up approach? Well, I think there are quite a lot of new kinds of popular music that are much more feminine than music we've seen in the past. And it's changed a lot the way that men sing as well. For instance, there's a lot of, there are now a lot of male falsetto singers soft-voiced falsetto singers. Um, I think right now there are more women in music than there ever have been, certainly in popular music, um, and possibly not only in popular music. Um, I don't know if you heard about that thing that happened about 20 years ago. The New York Philharmonic decided that 
they were going to do blind auditions because um, women were complaining that even though they were completely competent, they weren't getting jobs in the orchestras. So they said, okay, we'll do blind auditions and uh, we won't see what gender the person who's playing is. And the number of women accepted into the orchestra immediately increased by about 60%. <laughs> so, so, you know, there's, there has been a, a blindness to, just like when I was young, I thought women couldn't play drums, um, and I was wrong. Uh, so, so anyway, but I think part, one of the reasons this has happened, and it's both cause and effect, is because women play instruments in ways that men don't sometimes. Um, so this, the, the thing that women are bringing to music, which is a, uh, apart from all the things that men can do, but they also bring a sort of tenderness and fragility sometimes, uh, a, a wildness sometimes. These are things that we like in music. So it's not, it's not because anybody suddenly thought, oh, we should give more jobs to women. It's because people suddenly started liking the kind of music that women were making um, and wanted to hear more of it. Can I ask you, um, you there was an interview that you said uh, recently, you, your approach to producing music was you like to make situations we're all slightly at sea yeah. because people make their best work when they're alert. Um, and you said that people are not alert when they're settled and know exactly what they're doing. This, do you remember this, that? Yes, yes, I do. This is another argument for messy, for accepting messy, because when when things are messy, when you don't really know quite what's going on, you don't have a complete handle on it, you have to be paying a lot of attention because, you know, you don't have a formula ready to just carry you through. So you have to be looking all the time and seeing oh, there's an opportunity, there's a danger. Um, and I think when people are making music, the reason that so often the first take has something that no other take has is because you don't know what you're doing in the first take. You don't know what's happening. You're just sort of in this perilous situation of, of thinking, okay, I'll get through it. And that feeling of alertness and attention comes through in the performance. Um, you know, it's happened so many times in, in my career that you've, ha you've got a first take and everyone loves it, but it's not right because there's no words or whatever the problem is. So you have to do it again. And then you you're in this terrible position of trying to recreate that same sense of peril, of, of newness, of, of adventure. So, as, as a producer, that's one of the things I think I try to do is to try to make it so that every time it's an adventure. Uh, and you feel, you feel that when you listen to music, I think. So I have a way of relating to the climate change challenge, mm -hmm. uh, which is that it is quite an adventure, an enormous yeah. human, humanity-spanning adventure. Um, and and not all of us are all that keen <laughs> on on going on an adventure. Um, some of us are very keen on going on it, and some of us just want to get on with our lives and and do do what we do. Yeah. Um, 
but it is it is you, you said at the start that there is a lot to it that is technical. There are new technologies that need to be invented or to get rolled out. There are businesses that need to fundamentally change the nature of the way that they produce what they produce mm-hmm. and, and to sell it to us. Um, there is a lot that is unknown. Uh, there is also a lot that is known mm-hmm. and which we have not yet really acted upon. I, I'm interested in how you see that notion that you're just talking about, that sense of the one take, the first take, that that sense of uh, spontaneity that often leads to the truly great moment. Mm-hmm. How can How can that be a metaphor for this astonishingly difficult and complex task that we have in front of us, not just in New Zealand or in the United Kingdom, but literally every single country around the world with all of the differences in our circumstances have to deal with? Yes, well, I I think um, if you think of it in first take terms, that's that's all we've got. We've only got one take. You know, it's, it's always the performance that we're living when we're talking about the real world, one of the great things about art is that it doesn't matter if you make a terrible mess of it. Nothing really changes, you know, or if you don't like it, you can shut the book and read another one. So we, we experience all our alternatives in our experience of art. This is, this is where we inhabit other worlds briefly and see what they're like and think, Oh no, that, that could be better. This could be worse. All the, all the things that we do when we, experience art is is really increasing our vocabulary of alternatives but in life we don't get that many choices we have to come in prepared and this is why i think all of us really require constant process of imagining this is what you do when you look at art you're imagining you know any piece of art is sort of saying to you use your imagination and Imagination is one of those faculties like language that we're, we're born with the faculty, but we aren't born with the knowledge of how to use it. We, we, are, we don't come into the world as, you know, English speakers. We come into the world with the ability to learn to speak a language. Well, we come into the world also with the ability to learn to imagine and to be creative with our imaginations. And, you know, in England, we have a terrible thing going on at the in education where the schools all now insist that you have to learn the STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, very important subjects without any doubt, but they've marginalized all the, what you might call imaginative or creative subjects. So those are optional. They're, they're considered like the gravy on the meal, the, the icing, you know, not the important stuff. And, I really think that is a tremendous cultural mistake because you really want people who are imaginative. You want people who are creative and who will be ready for when, for their performance, you know, the, the performance of their life, who, who come to it equipped with an imaginative mind, a mind that can look at lots of options and make a choice. Because in most cases in life, you don't get that many choices. You have to come prepared. Um, so you have to have a lot of internal rehearsal of some kind. And I, in my theory about art, that's where we do that internal rehearsal. You 
clearly have some frustration uh, with <laughs> really. How, how did you know? Governments. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it might have been something that you said, uh, but you also sound quite hopeful. Mm-hmm. Are you hopeful? The way I think I am is this huge challenge that we're facing. If we actually succeed in dealing with it, it will have changed our society so much to try to deal with it. For instance, we will have to have some form of international cooperation beyond anything we've ever seen before. It, will, it won't work if we, each country has their own national strategy or no strategy for dealing with climate change, just like it won't work if, if we each have separate strategies for dealing with pandemics. You know, in the end, to, to deal with global issues, you have to harmonize global governments. So if we succeed in that, if, if we are driven enough to have to do it, which I think we will be eventually, then that will be a huge step forward in human culture. So we'll, we'll have a sort of new echelon of government, which is global. We'll still have national government and local government and town councils and so on and so on, all of those things. But beyond all of that, I think we'll have this new echelon of global where um, there are agreements. We have some experience of it. You know, the United Nations is an attempt to do that, the League of Nations before that. And we, we do have global agreements in trade and concerning fisheries and so on. So it's not an entirely new thing for us. So that's very important that we get used to the idea that we are moving towards some kind of globalization um, of that level. But the other part is that we must really get used to the idea that we're intensifying localization so that we become more and more engaged in where we are now and in looking after that. Because the problem with globalization to date has been that we could uh, sort of milk milk the globe and then use it as a waste basket. So what we have to do is start taking responsibility for our little bit of the globe. So this is a sort of intense localization that's needed as well. So my f- feeling, my optimism about the future in as much as I have any is that we will intensify both globalization and localization and we'll get better at doing each of them. Um, I do see some good signs of this. For instance, the Chinese, who are very, very interested in climate change because it really affects them, um, and because they know that the single biggest social issue in China now is not democracy and human rights and things like that. It's pollution. And they are really worried about a future in which they have 1.4 billion people or whatever it now is who are angry about the state of their environment. You know, China had a revolution not very long ago and hasn't forgotten what it was like. They don't want another one soon. So China is doing a lot to green the country, much more than any other country, I would say. Um, And at the same time, China has reached out to Europe. There's a new kind of conversation going on 
which is based around the Belt and Road Initiative, this idea of creating sort of a new Silk Road between the East and, and Europe. Um, this is actually going forward very, very well. Of course, England, having now left the EU, is no longer part of it. America doesn't want to be part of it. But nonetheless, there's this new axis of a sort of green, green-looking future, which I am very impressed by and uh, following closely. Um, so, so these kinds of things don't make that much news because they are slow, under the surface building type processes. But, but I think they are very important processes. Brian, that's, I think, a fantastic place for us to conclude the conversation actually um so i just want to thank you so much for your time and your generosity of spirit i have found that absolutely fascinating uh, and i know that the people who have been listening to this also will so thank you thank you very much for listening and thank you to brian for joining me feel free to get in touch anytime my email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Next week, I'll be speaking to the physicist, ecologist, activist and writer, Dr. Vandana Shiva, about the future of agriculture and the role of gender in environmental politics. I'll see you then. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.